This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in Melbourne's CBD. Today's big question, why am I not an atheist? We ask this question today to David Robertson. David is the minister of St Peter's Free Church in Dundee, Scotland. He's the author of numerous books, including The Dawkins Letters and Magnificent Obsession, and he blogs at theweflee.com. He regularly debates and engages atheists around the world, and he joins me now. Please welcome David Robertson. David, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you. Now, David, you blog at theweflee.com. Your Twitter handle is theweflee. Why do you go by this name? I wrote, I ended up writing a book a lot of, called The Dawkins Letters, which was a response to Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. And he wrote about myself and uh, Alistair McGrath and two or three others. He said, he quoted W.B. Yeats and he said, we were like fleas living off a dog's back. Well, my denomination in Scotland is called the Free Church of Scotland and our nickname is the uh, We Freeze. And uh, so I just thought, I got banned from Dawkins' website, so I just thought I'd come up with a, a false name. I did it several times. And I just thought, I'll bet you he doesn't know Scottish church history, so I'll just call myself the wee flea. And I survived for about six months under that title before they sussed it and I got banned again um, in that oasis of clear thinking and reasoning. Um, and so I, I quite like the name, so I just stuck with it. Um, basically, that's it. Okay, yeah. well, wel- welcome yeah. the wee flea. So to kick off bigger questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the okay. show. Today, we're talking with the wee flea, David Robertson, about why he is not an atheist. Now, in many ways, our conversation today is framed by the great British philosopher Bertrand Russell's influential work, Why I'm Not a Christian, originally published in 1927. So, David, our smaller questions to you today are, how well do you know Bertrand Russell? Now, do you feel qualified? Uh, I mean, I've read some of his work, not all of it. I particularly read his collection of essays on why I'm not a Christian. You can go ahead and ask. Okay, there's two questions, both multiple choice. Question one, Bertrand Russell received the Nobel Prize in 1950 in what category? Was it A, literature, B, peace, C, physics, or D, comedy? I haven't a clue, but I'd go for uh, literature. I don't see how he got the others, but... Uh, Well, it probably wasn't comedy, but it was actually literature. Congratulations. Yes, that's right. Yeah, why not? Big round of applause. Okay, question two. So how many times was Bertrand Russell married? Was it A, one... B, two, C, three, or D, four times? I'll go for three. Or you, I mean, you yeah. could, but you'll be wrong. Um, okay. Yes. <laughs> well, in that case, four. <laughs> well, that's yeah. the actually, answer is actually correct. Yes, D. So um, it was actually four times. So I unfortunately got that question wrong, David, but you yeah. still passed. You got one of two of our smaller questions, right? You passed. A big round of applause for David. <laughs> Now, David, you've contributed to a book called Why I Am Not an Atheist, where you specifically respond to Bertrand Russell's essay, Why I Am Not a Christian. Yep, David, there was a time in your past when you actually wanted to be an atheist. So what was it that attracted you to atheism? Um, I grew up in a Christian home, and I found it at times quite restrictive and quite hypocritical. Um, What did you see? 
the community aspect of it I really liked. I just felt like Bertrand Russell at one point, he, he argued that Christianity would make a lot of sense if people actually believed it. And I just felt that there were an awful lot of people who didn't. And you observe things and you see things. So I, I must have been a weird teenager because when I was about 12, 13 years old, I decided I was a communist. I was born in 1962. So I remember um, cheering on the Viet Cong against the Americans. Um, that, that was my rebellion in, in life. My friends were doing drink and drugs and stuff like that. I just thought that's dumb. Uh, better off being a communist. I so think was that connected to your being an atheist or being attracted no, no, to an no, atheist? No, no, that was the. I, I wanted the world to be a better place, and I just thought things were so unfair. And so, because of that, I then thought, well, you know, you really should be an atheist. Um, and also, the other thing about atheism was, if there was no God to answer to, I could do whatever I wanted. Mm -hmm. So that was um, Aldous Huxley, who who once argued that um, he just didn't want it to be true. So I really didn't want Christianity to be true, and I did want atheism to be true, and I did want to be kind of in charge of my own life and doing what I wanted. So um, I tried to be an atheist. Right. But was that because of the freedom that you felt that atheism brought? I thought it would bring freedom. Um, I thought it made more sense intellectually. And it also seemed to me that um, there was just so much hypocrisy in religion. Yeah. So. Mm, mm. So why aren't you an atheist? Well, the number one reason is this, and I apologize if anyone here is an atheist and you find this insulting, but intellectually, I couldn't make any sense of it at all. Um, for example, I grew up in the highlands of Scotland and I used to walk along these cliffs that were about 200 feet high and I'd see dolphins playing and everything. Just beautiful, just gorgeous. And I would look out and I would just think, there's no way that all this is an accident. And it seemed to me that to believe in a materialistic view of the world, it ended up with my having to say all this was ultimately an accident. And intellectually, that just didn't make any sense. It, to, me, to me, it was like looking at a painting and thinking that it happened because a bunch of paint pots fell off the table. It just, that just didn't make sense. So I, Sir Fred Hoyle, who's an atheist, um, when he discovered, in effect, the properties behind the Big Bang, he said that nothing shook his atheism more than that. And I could understand that because he said it was as though that a, a whirlwind went through a scrapyard and after it went through, there was a Boeing 747 ready to fly. It just didn't make any sense. And so that it was the intellectual rather than the emotional uh, that was the main thing. So I, I ended up being incredibly confused because emotionally I wanted to be an atheist and intellectually I couldn't do it. To me, faith in God for most people is not a, it's not a gigantic big leap. It tends to be just accumulation of evidence. So th that would be my position. But I mean, also, there are intelligent atheists who do think that it's intellectually coherent. So why should we believe your perspective? Well, you shouldn't, because um, I don't think I would have the arrogance to say you need to believe it because I believe it. I mean, I am a minister, and this may sound very, very strange, but when people ask me what my job is, I say my job is to try and get people to think. Um, I, I don't tell people what to believe. Uh, I, I think that is unfair. I mean, I think I'm, I'm going to argue passionately for Jesus Christ and for the Bible and so on. But I, I don't say you've got to believe this because the church says it or because I say it or because other people say it. So, yeah, I accept that there are many intelligent atheists, far more intelligent than I am. But I also accept that every human being's intelligence is limited. Well, maybe let's consider some of the arguments that Bertrand Russell makes in his uh, essay 
I mean, Russell says in his essay, but who made God? That very simple sentence showed me, as I still think, the fallacy in the argument of the first cause. If everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. If there can be anything without a cause, it may well as be the world as God, so that there cannot be any validity in that argument. Okay. So how do you respond? Well, I'm sorry, I regard that as so intellectually vacuous as to be just incredible, because I expect, you know, when my daughter was three years old, Dad, who made God? Okay, that's a fair enough question. But from a professor, I find that such a daft question. Why is it so daft? Because we don't believe in a made God. That's the whole point. Now, where Russell was right is you basically got two options. Your first option is that there's a lump of rock or a mass of gas or something that's eternal from a beginning. Russell didn't know about the Big Bang. Science overtook Russell. And he believed that, that matter was eternal. So, and in effect, you've always had that position. You've had the ancient Greeks saying matter was eternal. Or you had the theist position saying that there's an eternal God. So, and that's the two options that you've got. You've either got everything coming from an eternal, unthinking matter. And Einstein struggled with that one. That's why he wouldn't go that far. He, he believed that there was a mind of some kind. Or you've got everything coming from a personal God. What you cannot have is an infinite regress. That just didn't make any sense to me. I had two options because John Lennox puts it really well. He says, what makes you think it's more intellectually acceptable to think that your mind came from unthinking matter than to think that your mind came from a greater mind? And for me, that was a no-brainer. Okay, moving on. Maybe the problem of evil and suffering in the world is often a very common reason for people to reject God. Now, if God were powerful, he'd end suffering. But because we have pointless uh, evil and suffering in our world, uh, the most obvious conclusion to draw is that God isn't there. So what do you think of the problem of evil? Does that render God uh, imaginary? The problem of evil is actually the reason I believe in God. That's the number one reason that I believe in God. And that's a controversial statement because the problem of evil often turns people away from God. I think the problem of evil turns middle-class um, liberals, philosophers away from God because it's a good excuse. My experience has been that in, when I've been in countries where there's been a great deal of suffering with people who's a great deal of suffering, it, it, it works the other way. Now, I know for some people that's not true. For some people, they've been going along nicely. They believe in God. They go to church. They say their prayers. Their granny dies. Suddenly, they don't believe in God. But that's because the God they believed in before, they didn't really believe in, didn't exist. They believed in a God who was a slot machine in the sky who would answer their prayers and help them pass them the exams and get the girlfriend they wanted. Um, that's not the God of the Bible. My issue with the whole question of evil boils down to this. Take God out of the equation, you've still got evil. How do you deal with it? How do you define it? Um, Richard Dawkins has a very simple answer. He says it doesn't exist. He says that the universe has all the properties that you would expect if there was no good or no evil. So ultimately, good and evil are just chemical reactions. In fact, Ayer's thing is absolutely fascinating because he ends up saying that in terms of truth and reality, there's no such thing as morality. There's no such thing as good. There's no such thing as evil. And so I find that fascinating that you get atheists who can say there, there can't be a God because there's evil, and yet their whole worldview says there can't be evil. It's just a human construct. It's just how we react to situations. So, I mean, I'll give you... Let me but give you're, you not a, saying, you're not saying that atheists uh, can't be good, though. No, because the, the, it's interesting, the Christian point of view is not that if you're religious, you're a good person. The Christian point of view, this is where George Bush would have really been helped if he'd had th good theology. 
Um, because when he went around saying there's the good guys and the bad guys, and the, from a biblical perspective, no. The, the biblical perspective is we're all messed up. We're all good. We're all bad. We're, you know, I, I, for example, my degree uh, was in history, and I specialized in uh, the rise of Nazi Germany. And the thing that shook me more than anything was the realization that the Nazis were human and that I could have done what they did. There was a film, Das Untergang, where it caused great controversy in Germany because it portrayed Hitler at the end of his days and it portrayed him as a human being who was kind to women and liked dogs. Well, that was true, but he did such great evil. And so I looked at all of that. Um, so for me, the whole question of evil is not so much why does it exist, which I think philosophically I'd be prepared to argue why it does exist, but what has God done about it? I've been in ministry for many, many years. I see so much suffering and so much pain and so much sorrow. Um, there was a couple who I really liked, but who hated the church. But they quite liked me, but they would never, ever come to church. And they had an 18-month-old girl, and she died, a caught death. And they asked me to take the funeral, and I was so distraught at it. And you've got the wee white coffin, you know, just, what, three feet, and family only, and... I was just devastated and I thought they didn't believe in God before. How am I going to go and face them and talk to them? And then on the Sunday morning, the mother was in church. And when she came out, I'm not very subtle. I said to her, what are you doing here? <laughs> and she said, David, if there's no God, none of this makes any sense. And it was suffering that drove her to consider. And I've seen that so many times because let's say... You remove God out of the equation. You're still left with the suffering. You're still left with the evil. But actually, you're not left with any way to deal with it. Uh, I, I think Dawkins described it really well. I was discussing on his um, uh, Facebook page one time, or not Facebook, but his website and different things. And basically, his response was, well, just suck it up. That's what happens. Some people get lucky. Some people don't. Suck it up. Uh, I, you, did you have the atheist posters here? The, you know, the, on the buses. Did you have that? It was done in London. Um, oh, not really. Not really. I think they tried to here, but um, there was, I debated the person who developed these. Um, there's probably no God, so cheer up and enjoy life. Well, that's a fat lot of use if you've just lost your child or your son to drug addiction or whatever. Just cheer up and enjoy life. That's the way it is. It's all very well if you're doing quite nicely in life and you've got money and you, everything's okay. It's no use when you're faced with suffering. So for me... It, that's how it works the other way. Mm. That kind of raises the question that Carl Sagan, it's no point necessarily persisting in a delusion or if it's, if it's not true, then in some ways, if it's reassuring, that's fine, but maybe you should just suck, suck it up. Um, I, I agree completely. I don't think there's any point in persisting in a delusion. And I tend to regard atheism as the biggest delusion possible. Um, I, I, to me, I, I do think that intellectually and otherwise, it doesn't make that much sense. Now, a number of questions have come in, which I'll try to feed some of them in, and I've got more things to talk about. But the problem of evil is to understand how such immense suffering can coexist with a supposedly omnipotent and omnibenevolent God. How does criticizing atheism actually answer that question? Well, I don't think it does. Well, what I'm saying is when someone says they are an atheist because of the problem of suffering, I'm just saying, okay, what's your answer to it? And I don't think the atheist does have an answer. So if you're asking what the Christian answer is, I would, I would take several um, stabs at it. One would simply be this. When you say it's pointless suffering, how do you determine what pointless is? How do you know? So you and I, we're in a very, very limited position. Um, secondly, 
I would want to ask this. If, if, if I could create a world, if I was God and I could create a world in which there was no suffering, no pain, no broken relationships, no divorces, no cancer, no illness, would you like me to do it? If I could make your world like that, would you like it? And if you said yes, I would say, okay, I'll make you into a chair. Because the chair that you are sitting on right now has no suffering, it has no angst, it has no worries about the questions of life and all that kind of stuff. Well, you say, that's ridiculous. Okay, well, it is ridiculous. But then what makes you a human? Because you have the capacity to reason, because you have the capacity to choose to make moral decisions, because you can appreciate beauty, because you can choose. So if you want a world in which there is beauty and love and choice and freedom, you have to have a world in which you get a choice. You cannot be like Henry Ford, who said you can have any color that you want for the Model T as long as it's black. So when people are saying, well, God has to prevent suffering, what do you mean? They go the big stuff, you know, they go Auschwitz or they go someone dying in a terrible car accident. But what about the wee kid falling over and skinning their knee? Well, surely a loving God could prevent that and surely he'd want to prevent that. But what if God created this world to enable us to develop characters, personalities, souls, and so on, which involve choosing, then there's a price to be paid for that. I've got three kids. There's a kind of paranoia that people have. My parents, when I grew up, uh, I told you I lived above these cliffs. My mother used to say, go and play off the cliffs. Now, I'm beginning to think that she didn't like me all that much, but <laughs> at the time, it was freedom. It was great. I used to climb trees. I had a knife. I had an air gun. You know, I used to abseil down cliffs on my own without all the health and safety stuff. Um... And I had freedom. I went away once on a pony when I was 11 years old um, with an air rifle to go and shoot rats around the countryside in southern England. I'd be arrested now as a terrorist for that. Uh, you know, I, what I could have done with my daughter, I could have said, sweetheart, I don't want you ever to be attacked. I don't want you ever to be run over by a bus. So here's what I'm going to do. You ain't never leaving your room. You can come out. You can go to school. I'll escort you to school. You come back. I'll give you, a, 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 you know, a an iPad or something, up you go, and you can do all that kind of stuff. Do not think about the harm it does to our mind. But no, you're not going downtown by yourself. You're not doing this. Well, I did let my daughter go downtown by herself. Was I an irresponsible parent? No, I don't think I was. I think there were certain safeguards I took and all the rest of it. I would argue the same. If God gives us free will or any kind of choice, then that is going to involve a world in which there is good and bad, in which there is evil and suffering. Augustine had this great argument. I still think he had the best argument of all when he was talking about evil and suffering. And he said, evil is not created by God. It's not a created thing. It's not a material thing. Yeah, Dawkins would agree with that. But what he would say is evil is the absence of good. And he, he argued that God, what if God allowed us to have a world where we could reject the good in order that we could freely accept the good? So uh, that makes sense to me. I think philosophically, emotionally, in every way, it makes sense. And that's back to the freedom. Dawkins, whenever he's asked about free will, he won't answer because he, he doesn't believe in it, but he realizes it's, a, it's his, his Achilles heel. Mm. Now, the big question that David Robertson is answering today is, why am I not an atheist? Now, the Bible offers insights into this question, although many atheists are critical of the Bible. Indeed, Bertrand Russell claimed that historically it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. So, David, why should we even consider the Bible in answering this question? I used to argue against the Bible and pick holes in the Bible. Um, and when I became a Christian, I just thought, okay, I accept all the Bible. And then um, someone gave me a book, 101 Problems from the Bible Answered. It's a dreadful book because I read it. I had no problems before I read it. After I read it, I had 101 problems because all the answers were rubbish. And I just thought, oh, what am I going to do? 
and it really was a crisis of faith for me. And then the logical things, I mean, to me, I've always argued myself out of doubts by logic. And the logical thing was, wait a minute, you're a very young Christian. How do you expect to know the whole Bible? God is greater than you. He's got a bigger mind than you. Um, it's not that you're not allowed to question. Maybe you just don't, you're not going to know everything right at the very beginning. Maybe you're just learning. And so um, over the years, those 101 problems are down to about six or seven. Um, but you can and, still believe it. Well, you still oh, yeah. Trust no, it. no, I, oh, I still trust because I just think, okay, my mind is, um, there's a limited capacity. And what I do with the Bible is, I mean, I, history is my degree. So uh, I, I, I do with the Bible what I do with anything. I mean, people say about the Quran, well, I've read the Quran because, you know, if I'm going to talk with a Muslim, I want to know what the Quran says. So I, I, spend, I spend a lot of my time reading stuff that I think I'm not going to agree with and I learn from it. And I think what I do with the Bible is I do two things. First of all, I would say actually read it. That really does help. Um, so I'd say read it for yourself and ask questions. Uh, and then on the historicity of Jesus, Russell said that because he was an atheist and he was brought up as an atheist and his dad was an atheist, although his granny was a good Scots Presbyterian. You know, that's just a nonsensical. There's a, you, you have a wonderful historian in Sydney, John Dixon, who's written plenty about this. But no serious historian would argue that Jesus didn't really exist. They'd certainly argue he wasn't the son of God and so on. But once you get to that level, you, you're starting arguing, you know, the Holocaust didn't happen and you're into the post-truth fake facts of history type stuff. So I, I think you look at the history. I think you read the stuff. I, I think you question. Um, I think you discuss. I think you need a certain degree of humility as well. You can't just say, well, I'm going to assess and judge all this by myself. You can't. Um, but, mm. yeah. Now, as we consider what the Bible actually does say, uh, in John chapter 8 of the Gospel of John, which is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have, Jesus is engaging a group of Jews in discussion about who he was. Then he said to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So Jesus is claiming that believing in him brings truth and freedom, but isn't this precisely the opposite of what people think religion brings? Yeah, because I think religion is often oppressive. But then, you know, I mean, I remember when I started doing all these discussions, as I said, I've met some very, very reasonable atheists and some, you know, most of my friends are still atheists, so, and we're still friends. But I also met people who would come up with the most incredible arguments. You know, my favorite one of all time was the guy who stood up, and I've heard this several times, atheists don't fly planes into buildings. Well, neither do Presbyterians, nor, nor Baptists, nor, nor even Charismatics. You know, they, they, you know, they don't fly planes into buildings. Um, I mean, it's interesting. There was religious people who did it, though. Well, oh, yeah, see, then it all gets classed as religious. But actually, the number one terrorist group in the world up until fairly recently were the Tamil Tigers, who are a secularist group. I, I just simply say this. Religion does a huge amount of harm. I, I don't dispute that. But so does money. And so does sex. And how many of you here are going to give up on sex and money just because it does harm? And yet there are people who just say, well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll guarantee you there'll be more people being abused in Melbourne tonight because of sex and because of money than because of religion. And yet it's religion that, oh, just it's religious. So how does Jesus then bring truth and freedom? Always beware of somebody who says they know the truth. Uh, I did a debate with a philosopher in the United States. And when he heard this phrase about truth, he said, only in the southern U.S. could this make sense for a liberal to say this. But he said, when I hear someone speak about absolute truth, I reach for my gun. <laughs> and he's, he was thinking, someone who's into absolute truth is, you know, they're dangerous. They're fanatical. They believe because it's the truth. They're going to do it. 
There are two responses to that. First of all, if you're saying there's absolutely no truth, then that's an absolute. Or there's no absolute truth, that's an absolute. So you contradict yourself. I think the Christian position is not, look, here we have a book or here we have a set of propositions and that's it. And this is the truth. It's everything. The Bible defines truth as being in a person in terms of in Jesus Christ. So I I don't really want to argue for theism. I, I want to argue for Jesus Christ as being the truth. And I think that's what he's saying. He's not saying know the truth and the truth will set you free. He's saying, know me because I am the truth and you'll be set free. So how does Jesus set you free? The way that I would argue Jesus has set me free is one is free from my own sin. It doesn't mean that I don't sin. It does mean that I'm not guilty. I'm not going to be punished for it and I don't have to do it. Um, So I'm not, I'm set free. I'm not genetically determined in that sense. I do have a freedom. I think also I have a freedom in terms of society because I'm constantly being pressured in society to do this and to do that. And I'm, I'm just saying, no, I'm not going to do it. I, I don't accept the way that society goes. And I also think that one of the great things in the Bible for me is freedom for the poor. Because we live in this bizarre world in which everyone says we're into equality and diversity, and yet we're becoming more unequal. And how does that make any sense? Now, for me, that's a particular issue because that's where I went the communism way to start with. And I find that Jesus does make people equal because if I believe that every human being is made in the image of God, then it means that the person who's lying outside in the gutter in his own urine is as much a human being as I am. Or even the ISIS terrorist is as much a human being. So I have to treat everyone equally as a human being made in the image of God. Whereas actually, if you're an atheistic materialist, you don't. In fact, it doesn't make sense to do that. Equality doesn't make sense in an atheistic worldview. But in a Christian worldview, it does. And for me, that's a very, very liberating thing. So David, why are you not an atheist? Well, my my number one answer would be probably because of Jesus Christ. Uh, I mean, mean, the, the answer I gave at the beginning was I find it intellectually completely unsatisfying. And I'm really struggling with that. I find it emotionally, spiritually, um, societally completely unsatisfying. As a historian, I look at things. There has never been a human society ever where people have not believed in some kind of God. Um, And I don't think that's because people were backward. I think it's C.S. Lewis's thing that we have an appetite because there's such a thing as food. Um, And we have a sense of God because there's such a thing as God. Uh, I Also, as a historian, I see every society that's tried to get rid of God has fallen apart. Uh, it's a disaster. So there's practical reasons, there are emotional reasons. I guess there's reasons of experience. I, I can't ask you to believe that because of my experiences. But I, all I would say is um, my experiences indicate that to me, it's the, again, the best explanation. And I guess my final reason is simple. I, it's Jesus Christ. The more I know about Jesus Christ, uh, the more I believe what he says. And I think things like the resurrection and his teaching and so on, they change everything. The resurrection is the absolute game changer, as was recognized in New Testament times as well. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to today's big question from John 8:31 to 32. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions. Please thank our guest today, David Robertson. (laughs) 